How are we, friends? Okay. Good. Some claps. Shout out to Alex, man. That was epic, bro. <laughs> we got to see those moves later again. Hey, we're going to hop right into it tonight. Uh, this morning, I, I asked you to, to picture a scenario with me, if you remember that. And the scenario was in a courtroom, right? And remember, there was a, a murderer who went through a trial, and, and he was caught with blood on his hands and the murder weapon on his car, in his car, and the judge declared him guilty. But I didn't finish this, this fake scenario for you because now tonight, to really elevate and accentuate the message tonight, I, I want to finish that story. Because after a judge convicts a criminal to be guilty, then he makes a sentence, and he establishes what the punishment will be for his crime. So again, all eyes are on the judge in this courtroom. And the judge says, for the, the crime of first-degree punishment, the sentence for this accused criminal is the death penalty. And there's a gasp in the room. Because this is a severe punishment, the most severe and now this criminal is going to die for taking a life. But then something amazing happens. The judge stands up, walks down, and gets cuffed by the officer. And he looks at the criminal and he says, somebody must die for this murder. And I'm going to die in your place. And then he's escorted out of the room. And again, this is, this is a fake story because it really wouldn't happen in this world except for what Jesus has done for us. And I just want you to see through this scenario really what Jesus has done that's so much greater than any story that I can make up because Jesus came down from heaven, lived a perfect, sinless life, and knew that Tyler deserves to die because of my sin. And he lived a perfect life, and he died in my place so that I, now I can live with him forever and ever Guys, this is the gospel. This morning was, was really heavy and was even hard for me to communicate. But I, I just am so burdened to communicate God's truth to you. But the hard and the heavy news this morning of our sin makes the good news so, so beautiful and so, so sweet of what Jesus has done. So who can remind me, what was point number one from this morning? Yeah, we're all sinners. And do you remember what verse that came from? Three. Romans 3.23, we're, we're all sinners. Everyone has sinned. And then what was my second main point? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and what does it say? Preach, man, I'm just going to give you this mic. For, for the wages of sin is death. The, the wages of sin is death, and we're all sinners, so we all deserve to die. And that comes from Romans 3.23, and then, yeah, Romans 6.23, the second main point. And guys, just a reminder that God is just. And just like we wouldn't want the judge to just let a criminal go free in our society, so God sees our severe crime and can't just let us go free. Somebody must die. And here's my prayer for, for the message tonight. Because we've been looking at the sins of Nebuchadnezzar, but actually the story of, of Nebuchadnezzar ends on a positive note in the book of Daniel. So again, we're just going to look at three verses, the end of Daniel chapter 4. 
And my prayer is that as we now look at Nebuchadnezzar's repentance, that the Lord would show us what it would look like for us to repent. And Nebuchadnezzar, his kingdom is restored, and I'm praying that the Lord would show us how we can also be restored. Okay, so let's open up our Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. And then I'm just going to pray as you're turning there. Lord, we so, so desperately need you. This message is so beautiful, and we want to hear from you. So Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would speak through me tonight, that you would guide us in truth, and that everyone in this room would look to your word and see the beauty of the gospel and the freedom that we can have in Jesus. Would the result be that you are glorified, nobody else. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so up to this point in chapter 4, you remember Nebuchadnezzar had the dream of this great tree. And then Daniel interpreted the dream for him. And Daniel says, unless you repent, Nebuchadnezzar, God is going to humble you. And then 12 months later, Nebuchadnezzar walks up on his balcony and says, isn't this great Babylon, which I have built for, for my glory? And God humbles him. And he becomes this gross beast. And remember, we were just like, yuck, when we looked at where his sin and where his pride led him to. But now, look at how this chapter ends. Start in verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In verse 36, at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me. And I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. And guys, look at the heart change here in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. We just got to approach this book with with grateful hearts because we're reading God's words. We get to hear from God through his word. And what a transformation we see in Nebuchadnezzar. We see that he repented, that he was just living his life, walking down the path, all for Nebuchadnezzar's glory. And then God humbles him, and and after seven periods of time pass over, then Nebuchadnezzar repents. And instead of saying, for for Nebuchadnezzar's glory, he says, it's all you, God. I'm nothing without you. This is all for for your glory and your praise. And something that I want to do is just show you how to be a good student of God's word. Because sometimes when we look to scripture, we actually draw conclusions that aren't there. And it'd be a shame if I did that for you, and I would challenge you to not just listen to everything that I say, but but look back at God's word and see if these things are true. And and it would be foolish to say that one day we can be 100% confident that we will see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. And I hope that we do, but the Bible doesn't show us that. What the Bible shows us is that Nebuchadnezzar repented finally in this moment, 
And then God restored his earthly kingdom. Do you see that in verse 36? He said, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And then don't miss this, still more greatness was added to me. So Nebuchadnezzar becomes even more powerful than he was than, than before he became this great and wicked beast. But what the Bible is showing us is that God restored him on earth. And we don't know. And the real question that we really need to be asking is, was Nebuchadnezzar made right with God? Or did Nebuchadnezzar continue in unbelief after this? But scripture doesn't, doesn't make it clear. But how beautiful that the book of Daniel ends, ends the narrative of Nebuchadnezzar like this. And it's my prayer that we too would, would repent and be restored. So I don't want you to hear me say tonight that if you repent and if you follow Jesus, then you finally get that Lamborghini. Or, or if you repent and you follow Jesus, then everything's just going to be roses and daisies for you. Because that's not the gospel. But what the gospel is, is, is if you repent and you believe in Jesus, then you're made right with God. And actually, the Bible says that our time on earth will likely become harder than it was before we followed Jesus. I'm not saying that we're not more joyful through those trials because we have an inexpressible hope and glorious joy in Jesus. But I'm not going to preach a prosperity gospel, which means that if, if you put your faith in Jesus, then all the riches will be given to you. Not worldly riches, but eternal riches. Because 99.9 plus percent of our existence will be in eternity. And that's the prosperity gospel that I preach, the eternal prosperity that we have in Jesus. And right now I'm in the age as, as we've got our two little girls and, and we're starting to think about the future and starting to set up maybe some college savings accounts and our retirement account. I got to keep myself in check and, and we get, my wife and I got to keep each other in check because it's so easy to get caught up in the American dream. And here's what our culture tells us, that if you work your tail off, in your 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, then you're going to have a comfortable retirement. And that's how our culture defines success. That we just spend so much time thinking about the last 10 to 20 years on earth. But here's what I want to tell you. What a shame it would be if we spent all of our time and energy focused on the last 10 years on earth and neglected the next 10 million to come. We need to look at, at eternity. We need to look at how can we be made right with God. What does it profit a man if he, he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, he repented. And I love how this, how this ends. And, and maybe one day we will see Nebuchadnezzar in the presence of God, forgiven and restored. But the Bible doesn't say that. But the Bible does show us how we can be made right with God. So what we're going to do now is you can start turning to the book of Romans. Romans is a book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. So start turning there, and then I'll tell you why I'm having you turn there. So Romans, if you've heard of the Apostle Paul before, the Apostle Paul he was the one who physically authored the book of Romans. But really, like I told you, my, my first night with you was that all scripture is God-breathed. So what that means is the Holy Spirit used Paul to write this letter. And when we look at the, the context of Romans and what's going on here, guys, this is six or seven hundred years after Daniel and after Nebuchadnezzar. 
So hundreds of years pass, and now Rome is, a, is the mighty empire. And Paul, he, he, the Holy Spirit does a mighty work through him, and he travels to different regions, and many people come to faith by God's work through Paul, and many churches are planted. And Paul hears that there, there are followers of Jesus in Rome, and there's churches starting in Rome, but Paul hasn't yet met them, so he writes this letter to Rome to make sure that they understand the gospel because he hasn't yet interacted with most of them in person. So the reason we're turning to Romans is I'm going to kind of give an overview of Paul's message of the gospel, because Paul wants to make sure that these followers of Jesus truly know the truth. In this first slide that you see, these are three points that we've actually brought into messages before this so that we can come and, and share the good news tonight. But it starts in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. And Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So why is that important to know? Paul's saying that God is real and evident and actually undeniable. None of us are going to stand before God someday and say, God, there wasn't enough evidence. What Paul shows us here is the evidence is all around us in creation. The trees outside, the the pond, the breath in our lungs, our heartbeat. It was so beautiful when, when I got to just witness a baby form in the womb of my wife. And wow, there's a heart beating now. And now she has fingernails. And this is how her brain is developing. It's a miracle. And creation just screams evidence of a creator. So God is undeniable. And then where does Paul go next? Romans chapter 3, verse 23. This is what we talked about this morning. He makes sure that the church in Rome knows that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not just some. All of us are sinners. And then Romans 6, 23. It was so fun just starting with the first half of this verse, but then I couldn't not share the second half of the verse at the end of the message this morning. Because it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is where the good news starts to become really good. Because we're all sinners. We all deserve to die, but that's not the end of the story. God offers us a gift in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, if we look at the next slide, now we're going to go back a chapter. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And we're going to camp out on this point for a little bit. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Guys, you've probably heard people say, maybe even jokingly, Jesus loves you. But Jesus doesn't just say, I love you. Jesus shows us that he loves us. And Jesus is all-knowing. The theological word there is Jesus is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows more about you than, than you even know about yourself. And he knows how sinful you are, even more than you recognize your sin, and still chose to leave heaven come down to earth and die for you. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if you'll do me a favor and follow along with me, now we're turning to the book of John. 
It's just a few books before, or a couple books before Romans. And John chapter 19 is where a majority of our time will be tonight. Because I don't want to just say, Jesus died for you. I want to show you from God's word what really happened on the cross. Because the cross is something that's almost become cultural for us today, where we have it on necklaces or jewelry. And I would say props to you if if you're repping that cross to, to really remind yourself what Jesus has done for you. But it shouldn't just be a fashion statement. The cross is actually representative of the darkest day in history, but the message of hope for all of us sinners. So John chapter 19 is where we're going to be. And John is a book that's written. John walked with Jesus. John was led by Jesus. He saw Jesus die, and then he saw Jesus after he rose from the grave. And then he writes an eyewitness account of of things that Jesus said and did. In the chapter before John 19, and John 18, you may have heard of Judas before, but Judas was also a follower of Jesus, and he betrayed Jesus. And he, he handed Jesus to the religious authorities at the time. And the religious authorities, who we know as the Pharisees, they hated Jesus. They couldn't stand Jesus because they would look at Jesus and be so jealous of the following that he had. Or they, they might have even thought Jesus was a heretic because Jesus said that he could forgive sins. Jesus said that him and the Father are equal. And they're like, who is this guy? And they hated him. So so they look and examine him, and they say, he deserves to die. And then they bring him before Pilate, and Pilate is the Roman governor of their territory. So they bring him to Pilate because they say that according to our law, we can't kill Jesus. So you need to kill him. You need to crucify him. And when Pilate, the Roman governor, starts to examine and question Jesus, he says, I don't find any guilt in this man. What has he done wrong? He hasn't broken our law. Why are you so angry at him? But still, they just continue to press Pilate and say he deserves to die. He even tries to say, here, I'll I'll let Jesus go or I'll let Barabbas go. And Barabbas was this wicked criminal that everyone knew. And they say, give us Barabbas. What a shame that God Almighty is standing right there and they choose a criminal to come and live among them instead of Jesus. So it continues and, and let's start, John chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and, and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And then jump ahead to verse 16. After a little more dialogue. So he, Pilate, delivered him, Jesus, over to be crucified. So what's happening here? Because sometimes in the Bible, there's a really small verse that actually accounts for so much that happens. In John chapter 19, verse 1, when it says that Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, guys, Rome, they were actually master torturers. 
They were very experienced, and the cross was the most severe criminal offense that they had to offer. But Pilate didn't yet send Jesus there, and he tortured Jesus. And that's what it means when it says they flogged him. And when someone was flogged, it's not just a whip with one extension, but it's a whip with nine extensions. And there's pieces of glass and stone in each of these. And then they, they would probably tie your hands to a pole, and Jesus was either naked or had a cloth over him, and they, they whip him. And it's not just lashes that are hurting, but the stones in the glass are digging into his flesh and, and ripping out. And sometimes stomachs would open when someone was flogged. And another gospel account says that Jesus was flogged 39 times. And why 39? Because Rome had learned that if you flog someone 40 times, that's usually when they start to die. So they flogged him 39 times. And Pilate brings Jesus back out after some of his soldiers spit on him and mock him. And they take a crown of thorns and they just push it down on his head. And and now there's blood coming from his forehead. And they array him in this robe to mock him. And And he brings him out before the crowd. And what do they say? That's not enough crucify him. So let's continue on in in verse 17. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Again, Just a few verses that we read there, but so much that happened. Because now Jesus has been tortured and humiliated. And there he is, a bloody, humiliated mess. And now they say, Jesus, you got to carry this heavy piece of wood, this cross, all the way up the hill. And in his tortured state, he carries it up the hill. And when they get to the top of the hill, then they lay the cross down flat. And when it says they crucified him... What that means is they laid Jesus down on top of the cross and they took a nail, massive nail, and they likely, your arm has two bones here, a radius and an ulna, and there's a place where the two bones connect, and they likely pushed the nail straight through the skin here, right in between the two bones, going through nerves and muscles and flesh, because when they put Jesus up on the cross, then all of his weight is going to be bared there. So so they strike the nail, just agonizing pain, and his hands just got to be limp. And then they take his other arm, and they do the same. And then they they put one foot over the other, and they drive a nail through his feet. And there's the, the, the God of the universe, upholding the universe, humiliated, bloody on the cross. And they raise up the cross, and it sinks in, and there's Jesus. Why? Because of our sin. Because he loves us so much that he would go through all of this so that we can be forgiven. So that we can join him in his forever home. In Mark chapter 15, in Mark's account of when Jesus was killed, Mark says that Jesus said on the cross, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that mean? Forsaken means to abandon. So what happens there is Jesus is referring to the Father and saying, God, where are you? I feel abandoned. And and this is the only time in the Bible that we see Jesus refer to the Father as God, not as Father. 
And it seems that Jesus, who has existed in perfect unity since eternity past with the Father and the Spirit, then is abandoned or forsaken by the Father in this moment because this is what we deserve, friends. But Jesus took this agonizing spiritual pain and physical pain so that we can come in freedom because Jesus also said on the cross, it is finished. Another translation means paid in full. That term that he said there is actually a banking term. And that means that all your debts have been paid. Your balance is zero. You owe nothing. So when he said it's finished, that means that all of my sins that I've piled up, all of my unholiness, all of my wages that I bring to a holy God are paid in full in the person and work of Jesus. I've shared with you last night the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And the backstory there is Horatio Spafford is writing these powerful lyrics over the grave of his daughters. Well, my favorite verse in this song is verse three. And here he says, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. What does that mean? Horatio Spafford is sitting over the grave of his daughters, and he's pondering what Jesus has done for him, and he can't not sing the praises to God because he recognizes this. Joey, if you go to that next slide, here's what this means. Horatio says, my sin Oh man, this is an amazing thought. Not just some of my sin, but all of my sin. Jesus took it on the cross, and it's no longer mine to carry. Praise Jesus. Everything that I am, praise Jesus. Because Horatio recognizes that no matter what happens in life, Jesus has paid his debt in full. There's nothing else that he owes because his faith and his trust is in Jesus. So three days later, here's Jesus. He breathed his last breath on the cross and then died. Guys, Jesus wasn't just as good as dead. Jesus was dead. No heartbeat. No breath in his lungs. And just to make sure, there's a gospel account that says that they took a spear and they stabbed it through his side. And blood and water gushed out of Jesus. It's so crystal clear. Jesus didn't just pretend to die. Jesus is dead, lifeless, and then he's buried in a tomb for three days. And it's just a, a mournful state that his followers had to be in. But then, three days later, Mary Magdalene, with a group of her friends, they go to Jesus' tomb where his dead body was to tend to this dead body. But the stone is rolled away. And where Jesus' dead body was is, is now empty and vacant. And then it says that Jesus looked at Mary and he said, Mary, and she recognized him. And guys, Jesus wasn't just as good as dead. He was dead. And then he resurrected, which means that he came to life from death. And then he goes and appears to the disciples and he walks on earth for 40 days before he ascends back into heaven. And what's so beautiful about the resurrection is that it validates everything that he said and did. Because there's been a lot of great philosophers that have come and walked on this earth and died. There's been a lot of great leaders that have come, walked on this earth, 
caused a following to follow them, and then died. Jesus came, and he said, I can forgive sins. He said, me and the Father are equal. And he said in John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And then he died, but he didn't just die. He conquered death. And he rose from the grave. And it validates everything that he said and did. And now here we are, 2,000 years later, after Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. And the question still remains. The most important question you will ever be asked is this right here. Who is Jesus to you? Because it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what your youth pastor says. One day you will individually stand before God and he will either see you as his child because Jesus took your death or he will see you as an enemy and then you will enter the second death like we talked about this morning. So who is Jesus to you? Well, now we enter back into Romans chapter 10. You can turn there if you want, but you don't have to. And now, where Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, it begs the question, okay, Jesus died, now what? Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So how can we helpless, dirty sinners come before a holy, clean, sovereign God? Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, what does that mean? To be Lord is to be master. If you look to Jesus and you say, I don't care what they think of me. I don't care what the rest of my life on, on earth will look like. I don't care if I have a comfortable retirement I don't care about these video games. I don't care about these people. Jesus, all I care about is you. You are my Lord. And if you confess that and declare it, and if you truly believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might be saved. There's certainty here in this salvation. And I've been holding off on my main point until right now, because here it is. Guys, the only way that we're saved is by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 is where this comes from. And it says that you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So I know I don't have it up there on the screen. I forgot to give Joey the slide. But we're, we're saved by grace through faith. That comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 9. And my wife and I love the concept of God's grace so much that that's the name of our firstborn daughter. Because what God's grace means is that God has given us something that we don't deserve. The literal definition is being given unmerited favor. Something that you don't work for, something that you can't earn, but you get favor with God by grace. Through faith, that's how we're saved. So is Jesus really your Lord? Do you really believe that he rose from the dead and took the death that you deserve? So I ask you again, who is Jesus to you? And I'm going to do something in, in a couple minutes where I'm going to give you an opportunity, not right now, but if you, before this week, if Jesus wasn't your Lord, 
if, if you had never believed and if, if you've just been trying to, to work out your salvation on your own, I'm going to give you an opportunity to, to stand and declare amongst these, these brothers and sisters that you are now God's child rather than God's enemy. But I'm telling you that now so that you can start to ponder, do I really believe this? And here's what I want you to do. Just all of us, take 10 seconds to ourself and just pray to the Lord, God, do I really believe this? Am I your child or am I your enemy? Just take 10 seconds, do I really believe this? Okay. So I want to be so careful this night because a temptation here is for me to, to give you an opportunity to stand and then for you to think, that's what saves me. But friends, remember what the main point is. We're saved by grace through faith. It doesn't matter if you stand or not. In fact, I'd rather you not stand if you're just doing it because you know that's what the preacher wants or if because you know that's what your youth leader wants. We're, we're only saved by grace through faith. And the true indicator of someone who has faith can say like Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And here's what you're saying if, if you stand tonight. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So if for the first time tonight, before this week, Jesus wasn't your Lord, and at some point this week or tonight, Jesus is now your Lord, and you now believe, I'm not going to ask people to close their eyes or bow their head. Because if you now have faith, this is a public faith, and your brothers and sisters want to celebrate you. So if Jesus is your Lord for the first time, I'm going to ask you to stand in three, two, one. Amen. Well, sister, can I just talk to you for a moment? Because you just boldly stood before a room full of people, and you, you said, I can't do it on my own, but only Jesus can. And here's what the Bible says to you. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that those who are in Christ are new creations. The old has passed away, and the new life has come. Romans chapter 8 says that you are now adopted into God's family if you truly have faith in Jesus. And your forever home is with him. And I just want to say welcome to the family. Mm. So again, it's not standing that saves us. But she just showed the boldness of her faith. But maybe for you, you just have some questions to wrestle through. Or maybe for you, you chose not to stand, and guess what? That's okay. You're not saved by standing. But I, I would encourage you to stay back and ask those questions and talk with a counselor and, and tell them of this decision because when we are saved, God gives us his spirit inside of us. And Jesus right now, I've told you before, is interceding before the Father on our behalf 
for those who have their faith in Jesus. But not only that, we are welcomed into a family and just lean on the family that God has given you. Now let me close in prayer and then we're just gonna end this time in a posture of worship through music. Oh God, I just praise you so much for the work that you have done here tonight. I think of the story of of you, Jesus, saying that a shepherd would leave 99 of his sheep to run after the one. And the angels rejoice when, when a sinner is, is made right with you. They actually envy now the relationship that we have with you. So Jesus, thank you so much for your gospel. Thank you for what you've done for me. And whether we stood or, or whether we didn't stand, I just pray that we walk out of this room We know how you define sin. We know that we're sinners, and we know that only through Jesus can we be saved, but we'd be be overwhelmed by the love that you have shown us. In Jesus' name, amen.